Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of CXCast. Sam Stern joined by my colleague Jenny Wise in studio. Hi, Jenny. Hello. Hi, everyone. And back again, all the way from San Francisco on the phone, Andrew Hogan. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Can't get rid of me. Can't get rid of you. Last week, we talked about uh, experienced design providers, and you laid out the landscape for us, a handy two-by-two that listeners, we shared a link to in the show notes for you. Uh, If you didn't listen to that episode, I think it's good to go back and and catch that one before we go deep this week into answering a second question about these experienced design providers. How do companies select the right one? Great that there's so many different options for you out there, but to avoid the paradox of choice... Andrew has also helped us by giving some selection criteria in some of his research in this area. So, Andrew, I'm going to ask a question, and probably I could go walk out of the the building for an hour and come back, and you'd still be laying out the detail here, but maybe give the three-minute version of that answer. What are the big things to look for when making the selection of an experienced design provider? So, the single biggest thing is to think about the scope of change that you're looking to drive. Um, And I talked about this a little bit last week, but, you know, from the broadest scope of change, so trying to enter new markets, new business models, get new customers, to the deepest scope of change, micro interactions at a single touch point, like an app or something like, a, you know, you, you care about the design of like a cup handle of like a smart thermostat or something. Thinking about it that way is one of the biggest things to think about because that'll really help you to focus on who are the, the right couple companies that I should be talking to and go deeper with. Uh, when trying to make the selection. Boy, you did keep that short. I Thank know, you. <laughs> was a distinct answer there. Uh-huh. Ooh, way to go. But so then when you talk about talking to these companies about how to make a selection, I'm curious if you have any tips or tricks on how to make sure that you get the right answers out. Because I know from you know, my experience mm. speaking with companies, especially if we're talking about you know, emerging technologies and who has the capabilities to help you know, lead this design thinking or research effort, it sounds like they can all do everything, <laughs> right? And they all have all these examples. They can do the back-end technology. They can do the design. So do you have any tips for people to sort of wade through some of that to see who actually would be the best fit? Yeah, I would really avoid or minimize the importance of the pitch. And I would really emphasize the importance of pilot projects and workshops. You know, I think you you often have to pay for these things to make it fair. But the thing about pitches is that it's really, their ability to talk is not connected to their ability to do. So the workshop sort of allows you to get into the doing a little bit more and you can kind of understand what's going on, you know, what their temperament is, their ability Mm -hmm. to collaborate, things like that. And then I would also say, ask for results on the projects that they're, you know, showing you or talking to you about. Ask them what happened when you did this. And often you find that they say, well, we haven't rolled it out yet, or there were challenges on the client side, or, you know, any number of other things that don't let you really interrogate the results and understand what's happening. And then finally, ask us. Uh, At Forrester, we talk to these companies all the time. Our job is to separate out what they're saying that's real from what they're saying that's maybe kind of like, you know, the movie poster version of the work that they're doing, you know, best partner ever, um, other things like that. Mm -hmm. We can sort of help you with uh, uh, what we really think about them and really hear about them. Right. Right. What they do versus what they say. The actual quote that they're uh, butchering there was best partner ever. No way. They were impossible to work with, but they just took best partner ever and removed the question mark. Um, no, that's really good advice, Andrew. I, do, you know, to, to, to build on that, do you have advice about, like we're going back, you just keep peeling back the layers here, but advice about picking the right pilots or, you know, small projects or picking the right, you know, matching these providers with the right pilots or projects? How do you advise firms to manage that process? Because I love that idea. I think that's a great way of 
cutting right to the work, as you said, and seeing how you get along with them. But how do you sort of set up that so it's you, you get good work out of something that you know, you're paying for it, you get good work out of it, and it's something you actually need, but it also gives you that sort of run through of, of whether they'd be good to work with over the longer term? Yeah, so one of the big things is to get it, whatever it is, into some kind of testing, you know, get some reactions from real people, and then see how, you know, they respond to those sorts of corrections and reactions. And what do they do uh, with it? Do they just get frustrated? Do they sort of get defensive and push back? Or do they go, okay, let's take that on and, you know, try to peel back, as you said, peel back the onion a little bit on what's happening and maybe some ways of thinking about it. So it's like the further you can take something into either a prototype or, you know, some other kind of thing that customers actually can react to and then see how they actually respond to that in the future. So if you're doing this early, I'm just trying to think of a really tangible example here. If I'm working at a company and we're interested in launching a chatbot, let's say, would you, I guess, do a workshop with this sort of partner to see how they would ideate the best places to start? Would you have them maybe come up with this, you know, conversational chatbot that's web-based and then bring in some users and sort of see how they use it and how they react to it to see if that company has sort of come up with some sort of good initial dialogue flow before you actually invest in working long-term and building it out? Is that the type of sort of trial runs you're talking about or is it... I think that, and I would really consider, um, so a company like uh, Willowtree has highlighted uh, a prototyping method that they've used where they actually use a Slack bot, or sorry, not a Slack, it's it's sort of a fake Slack bot where you have somebody behind the scenes that's typing reactions, typing responses, and they've kind of almost created this fake prototype. Mm. uh, The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, the Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz strategy, (laughs) Mechanical I love these, this is like body storming, I'm so into this. Yeah. And so, and, and what that does is that it gives you a way to actually see how they respond to the sorts of feedback. So mm-hmm. I, I think you actually don't even have to get into code. I don't, I don't think you mm. need to actually build anything. I think you need to get a solid mock-up up, and then the real key is to see how they respond when they start getting feedback and it starts not being just the vision that sort of springs from somebody's head. Yeah, so do sort of early concept testing. Yeah. Not only to see if it was a good idea based on the reaction of maybe real users or internal folks that aren't familiar with the project, but then also how the partner responds to negative feedback and, and sort of begins to iterate on the idea. These are things you probably have to pay for, but mm-hmm. you know, do you want to be half a million or a million dollars in, or do you want to be fifty to $100,000 in? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what you're looking for because you're not going to get nothing out of these projects you're going to get something that you can then build on uh, to determine if this is the right partner and the right way to go. So something else that you talked about was the workshop. Um, And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, maybe you don't come up with an idea that you're actually testing, but you do get to be familiar with the people that you might be working with. And that's especially interesting here because as you talked about in the previous episode, um, sometimes the people at these companies act as an extension of your team, of your design team, and can be really embedded in the organization. So it sounds like that could be a really important step to do to make sure that they would fit as a extension of your team. Right. I had one client tell me about their experience with one of the providers in here and that the sort of like discovery and initial strategy period was money that was well spent um, and it was very worth it to get everybody comfortable with how this was going to work and how it was all going to happen. So um, absolutely, it's a critical part. And if you think about this versus we sort of alluded to it last time, uh, the, the Don Draper, look at this concept, isn't it great kind of approach? You actually go, you know, here are some concepts and let's work and let's play with it. Let's see how you react when I 
say that this particular part of the idea is bad, mm-hmm. um, or this, this uh, you know, a regular person comes in and says, I would never do that. How do they react to that? Are they offended, or do they know how to respond and have a plan for what to do next? Yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, I would say this as the culture guy, but it, say, it does seem like <laughs> you're paying for a cultural alignment check. That mm-hmm. is, you know, so important to know if this, if they can be, you know, an extension of your design team and, and work in a really collaborative way with your organization. Because if they can't, I mean, you're probably actually disrupting your culture by bringing in someone who is is, is difficult to work with. It's, it's almost like a bad hire. And one of the things that I discovered in a, a workshop with the Forestry Leadership Board members, we had them do a collaging exercise mm-hmm. about their feelings about their uh, design uh, provider partners um, one of the things that I discovered in that workshop is that that was one of the big fears that people had late in the project. There were pictures of explosions and uh, tangled messes in the middle. And then oh, at the goodness. end, they were climbing a wall by themselves. They were on the moon by themselves. They were left alone trying to sort of figure out how to move forward. And that's the thing that you know these, these companies feared most out of these projects. That's fascinating. That sounds like you know the, the types of pictures that little Timmy draws in second grade and gets sent to the school counselor for, right? <laughs> like we, so I think we've got yeah. a problem here. We've got to bring the parents in. It's, it's a valid research technique. <laughs> that's a great application of that collaging method. Yeah. Uh, to really get at the emotion that they're having yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And then that's interesting, the idea of them sort of on stranded on this island by themselves or on the moon, because one of the things or reactions that I initially had when we were talking about this is that they become so embedded in the team sometimes, right, depending on the, the type of project and provider you're working with, is that once they leave, I feel like there would be this sort of gap in the team. Maybe it's a, a skills gap or a knowledge gap, um, but that the company may feel like they are just sort of stranded for the next step. Do companies run into that? And are there some ways to avoid that? I mean, it's certainly possible to run into that. You know, I I think that the answer to the question, do they run into it? Yes. But the ways to minimize it and what's sort of coming out is that the experience design providers are uh, actually actively helping themselves not have the same relationship over time. So the, the, the model that many of these are evolving to is we will help you. We will work on this project but we don't want to necessarily run anything long-term because we we wanted to join your company. We would just join your company. So instead, we're going to help you hire design leadership or product leadership, whatever it is. We're going to help you, you know, make sure that you have the skills you need by helping you with job descriptions, helping you with interviews, things of that nature. And and I think a warning sign um, is that if they're not talking about it like this, they're not talking about it as if they uh, will eventually be removed from, you know, the, the equation or their, their role will be minimized and, you know, they'll maybe enter back in when it's time for some sort of bigger changes. They should proactively bring up how the project is going to sort of move forward after the sort of uh, initial high amount of effort is over. That's great. I, I really like that, that you're putting that back on these providers as a, a competency or a skill that they should have, right, to help you transition out of that intense phase of work or the work that's most appropriate for them to the next appropriate, next best action, essentially. Right. One of the big things that I found in the research about what makes these relationships successful, what seems to, you know, be the big concerns. We did, you know, we did this collaging exercise and uh, there were some real high points where direction was clear. There were vision images, telescopes, compasses, street signs, eyes. Um, People were really saying when the direction and vision were consistent uh, with these XD providers, uh, the projects went really smoothly and they were really happy. And then on the flip side, you know, there was some real signs of, of arrogance when things went bad. So people use signs like, you know, neon neon leave sorts of signs, 
uh, to describe the sorts of, of unfriendliness and, you know, even just like a, an open horse's mouth with the statement, you know, if you explain it louder, it gets better and more clear. Um, so that's sort oh, of, no. those are the kinds of things to really look out for with these providers. And you can get through a lot of that with workshopping um, and you can start to identify whether direction is going to be clear and whether there's going to be arrogance that you're going to have to fight through. Yeah, that's fascinating. This is such a good application of that research method, yes. right? Because this is not the type of feedback that you just hear when people just talk to you and tell you how, how a project went with a, a specific partner. Yeah, that's important. So make sure the communication style is a fit. Yeah. Culturally, it's going to be a fit. With vision, you're going to be aligned and it's a fit. And then also what they think their role is. Do they think yeah. it's to be the, the person who just tells you what it is from their ivory tower or are they going to actually be a part of the team? Um, great. Well, Andrew, thanks for joining us again to talk about all of these uh, experience design providers. Really interesting. And listeners, a lot of good notes in there about how to select the right provider for you. And I, I think, you know, when I think of the word select, I think of, okay, we're going to look down the list and, and compare their capabilities. That's clearly not the guidance here. The guidance is put them through their paces, actually figure out if you can work with the designers of these firms and if they are a fit with your culture, if they're a fit with your needs. Um, so I think that was a real insight for me, Andrew. So thank you for sharing that uh, in this episode. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll talk to you all on next week's CXCast. Bye for now.